This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Here we are in another lockdown. A modified one, mind you, but a lockdown nonetheless. Indoor dining's paused. In fact, any events or attractions that take place indoors are currently not allowed. Gyms and fitness centers also closed. Retail is open, but at half capacity. Same for personal care services. As this long journey through the pandemic gets longer, guest host Jane Brown spoke with the president of the Toronto Region Board of Trade, Jan De Silva, for her reaction to these latest restrictions. I just need to say on behalf of our members, the business community of all shapes and sizes, huge frustration about another round of so-called temporary measures. What our members, what the business community is calling for is for governments to get serious about COVID as a continuing condition and putting tools in place that will sustain us through so that we don't need to go into these temporary lockdowns uh, every quarter. So a lot of frustration pent up in the business community with the, the recent announcements of the past few days. Jan, the last time you and I spoke, the premier was against implementing a vaccine passport or certificate program, and you were a proponent. Uh, Obviously, that ended up being an excellent idea. And I know the Toronto Board of Trade is all about brainstorming ideas. So what is being discussed, not just for the pandemic, but getting out of the pandemic, some of these solutions you're referencing? Yes, our small businesses, our restaurants, our gyms are badly impacted every time there are restrictions imposed on them. We've also got hundreds and thousands of workers, essential workers, healthcare workers, those working in logistics, e-commerce, food manufacturing, who've shown up and been on the job day after day after day to keep the economy going, to enable people to work from home. And there are solutions, different solutions needed for those two types of organizations. And I think the frustration with many, particularly the restaurants that that we are constantly in contact with, yes, we did get the proof of immunization as a requirement, but it wasn't until yesterday that we actually mandated use of a a standardized QR code-based system and required that businesses use a Verify Ontario app. For months, we've been working with bobbling with paper and and pens and other things to kind of track this. So businesses were frustrated at the the complexity of trying to juggle multiple systems. Also, the restaurants that I was speaking to before the latest announcement were saying, like, love the Verify app to verify QR codes, but for goodness sakes, couldn't we simply allow that as a tool for digital contact tracing and exposure notification as required, rather than having multiple staff and patrons still having to use pen and paper to record contact tracing information? So simply examples about business being frustrated that we, we do a little bit, but just not go the full measure about putting tools in place that would make it easy to operationalize mitigation. I think the other challenge with the system is that where the federal government announced that federally regulated businesses required uh, workers in the workforce to have proof of immunization, in the case of the province, they left it up to businesses to decide. So you had restaurants 
with situations where they were required to check that their patrons are immunized but did not have a fallback unless they choose to, to require their workers to do. So it's, it just seems inconsistent to mm-hmm. be able to leave it uh, open like that. Jan, before I let you go, uh, for your members uh, of the Toronto Board of Trade, what kind of assistance, support, motivation, guidance are you offering? Well, we're doing a couple of things. For those that are having to work on reduced capacity, we're, we built in a lot of resilience programs, helping them convert their businesses more digital, uh, supporting them with uh, ways of better managing supply chain and distribution relationships so they can continue to operate. For those businesses, and there's a number of them up around the Pearson Logistics Zone, we're working very closely to convene those businesses. Those are the Canada Post, the Amazons, the Walmarts, to make sure we understand what are the problems they're trying to solve, where do they need uh, government support around policy or regulatory changes for they so they can create a safe environment for their workers to operate in. So we're really focused on both ends of the spectrum. Those essential businesses that remain open, how do we help them put the tools and safety uh, protocols in place? And for those that are struggling with restrictions, how do we help them be resilient with programs that can address the pain points they're facing? Toronto Region Board of Trade President Jan De Silva. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Also joining Jane Wednesday to talk about the Omicron surge, hospitalizations, and the new restrictions, Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen Davila. This is, in fact, what we had anticipated might happen, knowing what we know about this Omicron variant. Uh, very, very transmissible. And the early data were suggesting that while it, it may not lead to as much hospitalization as previous variants of COVID-19 had, the issue is, is that when you have a large number of cases all arising simultaneously, even a small proportion of those cases requiring hospitalization, because it's a big number, turns out to be a big number itself. That being said, I'm also seeing this remarkable resilience across the sector, uh, lots of conversation on sharing of resources and supporting each other, uh, both you know within acute care, but also looking at supports that are being provided across all sectors of health care. That would include community care, uh, long-term care, home care. All the partners are working with each other uh, in in a model uh, where we're, we're trying to make sure that resources are being deployed where they're most needed, um, you know, so that we can actually address the healthcare needs of the entire population. So that's the nature of the conversation that's happening at healthcare tables and at planning tables on this issue. Now, the restrictions that went into effect today that are now in effect combined with the ongoing booster program, uh, will this help curb the spread in a noticeable way or is it a bit too late? Well, I think this is an application of what we have learned over the course of the last couple of years of the pandemic. We know that when it comes to COVID-19, the more interaction there is between people, especially with people outside of households, uh, the more transmission you get. So uh, certainly limiting uh, opportunities for interaction, um, especially non-essential interaction as much as possible, is part and parcel 
of reducing uh, the impact, the negative impact of COVID-19. It also happens to provide, you know, us the opportunity across all the vaccination partners to really drive out booster doses of vaccine. And in, in, in some cases, it's first or second doses of vaccine as well. So we know that vaccination is an incredible tool still at our disposal. And we are seeing increasingly in research, both here um, and around the world and in experience as well, that uh, with vaccination and especially with booster doses on board, we are seeing uh, protection from the most serious outcomes associated with COVID-19 infection, mm. hospitalization, ICU admissions significantly reduced when you are appropriately vaccinated and especially with booster dose on board. And should we conduct ourselves any differently if we've had our third shot uh, more than two weeks ago? Should we feel that we are better protected, therefore we might not need to worry as much about these restrictions? Well, you know, at this point, Jane, I would say that's not the way to go. What we are seeing with respect to having, uh, you know, a vaccination on board and that booster dose on board is that it reduces the likelihood of serious outcomes associated with COVID-19 infection, but doesn't necessarily give you a guarantee against COVID-19 infection itself. So I would ask that everybody, all of us, one, get vaccinated, and even if you are vaccinated, to reduce interactions at this point in time so as to try to limit the spread of COVID-19 in our community and to protect those essential services that we need the most. Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen Davila. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, the attack on Capitol Hill one year later. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. One year ago, the eyes of the world were on Washington. President Joe Biden marked the anniversary of the U.S. Capitol riot with a call for unity and some strong words for his predecessor, accusing Donald Trump and his supporters of holding a dagger at the throat of democracy. We must be absolutely clear about what is true and what is a lie. And here's the truth. The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. Before looking at the state of the U.S. now, I asked Mark Brewer, professor and interim chair of the political science department at the University of Maine, if he imagined anything like that happening. You know, I can still remember a year ago today, you know, sitting, uh, I was home by, by lunch that day. So sitting at home and my two older children were there as well, watching these events start to unfold on live television and, and not really being able to believe what I was seeing. So, uh, you know, even as someone who, you know, studies uh, political polarization and realized how divided we were as a country, I never could have foreseen that happening. 
uh, surveys come out this morning in this country. It's from Angus Reid Institute. You may or may not be familiar. Regardless, the findings, some of them are most Americans, including half of Trump voters, say riders should be held accountable. Most Canadians and Americans surveyed feel that the attack was domestic terrorism. Do you agree? I, I, I agree. I agree that it was domestic terrorism. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And at least in my opinion, I know there are there are people who disagree. Uh, actually, a fair number of those who disagree in the United States on that, including former President Trump. But I, I think that, in my opinion, there's no doubt um, that it's domestic terrorism. And I also would agree um, strongly that those who participated in and, and were responsible for should be held accountable and punished for those actions. The deep political polarization that you're experiencing in your country. Is it something that would have come about regardless of who was leader of the Republican Party, or is it because of who is the leader of the GOP? I, I think it's I think it's really neither of those, because I, I guess, and then let me uh, try and clarify that. I, the state of polarization that we're in right now in the United States predates Donald Trump, right? There's there's no doubt about that, that we can trace the origins of the current political polarization in the United States. Some people would say you could trace it to the 80s. Um, I probably would trace the origins to the early to mid-1960s. Um, that being said, Donald Trump you know, kind of added a huge amount of fuel to the fire there. So were we polarized before Trump? Absolutely. Did Trump... Um, increase that polarization exponentially? Absolutely. And I don't know that anyone other than Trump could have done it quite the way he did it. Uh, you want to hazard a guess if uh, he knocks Biden off, should Biden decide to seek re-election or that's so far off you just want to stay clear and you you don't want to have this come back and bite you? Well, I, I, I think it's I think it's too far out to say, um, but I, I could also say that I learned my lesson. I, I can remember, you know, in in 2015, um, you know, at a number, and I'm sure you could probably go and find the clips online, um, you know, saying to a number of media outlets and also at a, at a live event that I did with a colleague, um, you know, making the statement that Donald Trump won't even win a single nominating contest, much less, you know, get the, the Republican presidential nomination. And he did. And then, um, and then even when he, that happened, I said, I don't think he'll win the election. And he did. So, um, I, I, you know, once bitten, twice shy, I guess. So maybe I wouldn't predict that. But even if I was of a mind to, I think, you know, we've got a long time to go before November of 2024. And, you know, a month can be a long time in American politics, much less um, over two years. That being said, looking at Joe Biden's chances right now, his situation doesn't look good. You know, I mean, in, inflation um, is running rampant in the United States. As you said, COVID is is um, not only still an issue, but perhaps at um, the worst point it's been since the pandemic started, at least in terms of number of cases. Um, Biden's approval rating is underwater uh, by a significant amount. Um, right now, his chances don't look good, but things could change a lot by uh, 2024. Mark Brewer, professor and interim chair of the political science department at the University of Maine. This is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. After the attack in Washington last winter, Justin Trudeau had insults and stones fired in his direction during the federal election campaign in September. To see if the events south of the border were a preview of our political future, 
I spoke with Michael Adams, president of the Enveronics Institute, a group of research and communications consulting companies. We always have some version of, of what's going on. If they have a mass shooting every day, we have one a year. So if it can happen there, it can happen here. Um, there will be some a version of it. I, if, if you want to say, do we have a Republican Party? Uh, in Canada, we do. It's called the People's Party of Canada. It's, it's got 5% of the vote or nearly 5% of the vote in the last election <clears throat> and uh, up from 1.6 in the previous election. So, you know, we do have, we do have uh, versions of uh, U.S. politics, but uh, generally uh, we still, uh, we're still Canada. We're still different. We're, they're the revolutionaries. We're the counter-revolutionaries. Uh, we like peace, order, and good government, and they like life, liberty, and happiness. Um, we don't. Uh, we have confidence in our elections. We don't think they're rigged. Uh, half of Americans do, and and uh, our, our losing party doesn't think elections are rigged. If they lose, uh, if the conservatives lose, they don't say it was because the election was stolen. They, uh, they uh, have confidence in our. Uh, we have confidence in our political institutions. So, uh, yeah, I mean, anybody, you, you will get an example. You'll get an anecdotal example uh, in Canada of, of parallels to the United States. But I think it's astounding that you know they're our biggest trading partner, or they're our, our allies in NATO and so on. That we're juxtaposed against them. We're inundated with their politics. We're inundated with their popular culture. Uh, some of which we find amusing, some of which we find horrifying, but uh, we're still able to maintain our own uh, cultural integrity and our political integrity. Now, in an op-ed that you wrote in The Globe the other day, you said that we're not becoming similarly divided as Americans. Why do you feel there's uh, really no comparison between the two? Yeah, well, if you ask, uh, you know, you ask, Americans, where they are on the ideological spectrum of left-right, down there you you can use the words liberal and conservative. And what you find is is that you know, about a third are extreme liberal, a third are extreme conservative, and uh, and about a third in the middle. Um, Canada is overwhelmingly in the middle, uh, double the proportion in the middle than you have in the United States, and. And very small numbers, 5% or so, on the extreme of the right or the extreme of the left when you ask people what is their their ideological position. So, you know, the old joke, why does the Canadian cross the road? It's to get to the middle. And in Canada, the middle is where politics uh, is fought. And that's where... Uh, that's where the votes are. Um, you can you can go for regional votes in Canada, but ideologically... Uh, you better stay away from hard right or hard left, or you're going to find yourself, uh, well, there's no way in which you're going to form government. Mm-hmm. So the, the liberals know that, the conservatives know that, and they kind of go back and forth. Uh, Aaron O'Toole knows that he has to have uh, the two-thirds of uh, supporters of his party who are, are consider themselves centrist or even left of center. He needs their votes. Um, he needs the votes of cities. He needs the votes of multicultural Canada. Uh, he needs uh, votes in Quebec. And so everybody has kind of got to go halfway to reach out to the other. And rather than demonizing the other and just mobilizing your base, uh, if you want to win in Canada, you have to reach out to everybody. 
Michael Adams, president of the Enveronics Institute, a group of research and communications consulting companies. I'm Bob Comsick, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Ron in Toronto is frustrated by what he feels is a lack of a plan when it comes to schools. It's upsetting. And I, I listened to the entire news conference there, and I listened to the premier. But it's, uh, it's upsetting how one of the journalists, I believe, here in Toronto, uh, I'd asked the, uh, the premier on specifically what was the Ministry of Education um, going to be doing within the two-week period that we're asking kids to be back on e-learning. And he just couldn't answer them. He just couldn't give Ontarians uh, an answer on that last week. Uh, he was prepared to send them back uh, to uh, to the classroom uh, Wednesday. Now he's uh, delayed it a further two weeks, and we all know very well uh, that there's going to be a further delay. But what's upsetting with the premier? They had time. Uh, they they knew. They ought to have known that um, schools were going to be going back today. In fact. And nothing was prepared. And now he's saying that things are going to be done. But when asked what specifically the ministry is doing, he doesn't have an answer. He talks about a toolbox and all the tools being used. But is it a play school toolbox? What what toolbox is the premier using? And it's annoying, uh, Bob. It, it really is. Zeta in Mississauga thinks the province should have taken steps sooner. Um, watching weeks ago, the Omicron exploded around the world, Quebec. Experts all along is worrying about the hospitals and school system crashes so because of tsunami of patients. So why Mr. Ford did not implement public measure before the holiday when we know that infection numbers will climb and and we know that even the vaccinated are not going to be spared from this. So why encourage people to line up and expose to the, the most contagious virus for the rapid test? So the party and the gathering and sports arena to carry on. These tests are more crucial for the frontline workers. We are lucky, and it's a good thing that it's a flu-like, but it's still a very serious problem. The government's position on schools has Cheryl in Kingston scratching her head. I just have one question. Before uh, the reopening of the schools now, so on the last one, the government supposedly did everything to make the school safe. So if they then uh, put 70,000 HEPA filters in schools to make them safe, how come now they have to put another 30,000 in? Did they lie or what happened? Richard in Roscoe, Illinois, west of Chicago, weighed in on those vaccinated who've caught the virus. Well, actually, I'm, I'm looking at all this and you're, you're, we're talking about vaccination and yet people have the disease, can walk around, and how infectious are they? I mean, maybe, you know, they're talking about five days being um, being able to spread this disease. You, you are going into a restaurant vaccinated and still have the disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the 
transmission rate of people that are trans that are are vaccinated. Daniel in Toronto offered his take on our health system and believes it does not deserve a passing grade. I believe our health system, not only in the province but in the entire country, uh, is a failure, and I'll explain why. A nurse from the 1950s or the 1960s, first and foremost, was trained to act as a nurse in an ICU situation, whether it's wartime, catastrophic disaster, whatever the case is. The vast majority of nurses in our healthcare system are not trained to function in an ICU department. The province had two years to correct that, and yet today we still find ourselves with a lack of that resource and complete unrecognition for that level of expertise. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Pat in Toronto, who does not feel it's all the politicians' fault. Two points. We can't be blaming the politicians for all of this. I mean, they're supposed to be the governance people, as opposed to management are the people down below. So, I mean, and I think Dougie is listening to them big time. If there is one, uh, you know, complaint, it's poor communications. But, you know, when I heard Dr. Tang, I can't remember, Tam, uh, two or three weeks ago mentioning 26,000, I said, wow, this is going to be a real show. Well, what are we up to now? 40,000 a day. So, I mean, uh, and that's a countrywide number. But Mm -hmm. it's not that we didn't know, but, but, you know, people are tired and they don't want to believe all of this. And if there's one group that we should be really blaming, it's the non-vaxxers. Because if we had a 99% vaccination rate, we wouldn't be having the problems we're having. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us from noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. And call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.